Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Howdy, and welcome to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the national emergency of gun violence in America. I'm Sarah Lilly. And I'm Josh Shaden. Howdy. To kick things off, Sarah and I would like to encourage our listeners to support this station by becoming a WBAI buddy. What's a WBAI buddy, Josh? That's a great question, Sarah. WBAI buddies keep us riding high in the saddle by making a small contribution each month. Chipping in just a small amount will make a huge impact here at WBAI, allowing us to bring you Radio Gag each and every week. Visit give to wbai.org or text wbai to 41444 or just call 516-620-3602 the old-fashioned way right to become a buddy in the name of radio gag and as a special thank you from gag if you give 50 dollars or more you'll receive mm-hmm. an advanced copy of grace will lead us home by jennifer barry haas This book is about the Charleston Church Massacre and the hard, inspiring journey to forgiveness. If you give $25 or more, you'll receive a set of fabulous gag pins. I have mine on. So once again, visit give2wbai.org to become a buddy in the name of Radio Gag. Well, Sarah and I are thrilled to be hosting together for the first time, I might add, for this week's show. We're calling it Guns in the Wild West, the History of U.S. Gun Culture, Western Edition. And this week on the show, we give you the latest news on gun violence and GVP legislation. Then look at the myths and mystique surrounding guns and their association with cowboys, cowgirls, good guys, bad guys, wagon trains, and the West. Yes. As we begin each show, just like we uh, do our biweekly Gays Against Guns meeting, with an in memoriam reading to remind us of why we do this important work tonight we honor jason Pirro. and just a quick note to our listeners to say that gag avoids using the name of assailants in order to focus on the value and tragedy of those who have lost their lives i want to thank mia mcclinton a student at millennium brooklyn high school for honoring jason tonight For tonight's In Memoriam, remember Jason Perro, a 14-year-old boy and member of the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Tribe of Chippewa Indians in Wisconsin, who died in 2017. Jason was a sweetheart angel face, said his cousin who drove 200 miles to be at his funeral. He was a musician in a school band and he practiced native drumming. He was also the guide for his mother who was blind. Perro's grandfather, Alan Perro, described Jason as someone who never had one mean bone in his body. Godier said her son was a big teddy bear and everybody loved him. After the shooting, Bad River Band Chairman Robert Blanchard said he had not heard directly from sheriff officials about why Perro was shot and he questioned why the deputy had to take the teen's life. Tragically, Jason was killed after having made the 911 call that Sheriff Deputy Merjanovich was responding to. The knife was found at the scene after Jason had called 911, reporting a man wielding a knife at his address. The description he gave matched himself. This is a tragedy that should not have happened. 
There's other ways to do things than to pull out a gun and shoot him, Blanchard said. Sheriff officials said the deputy was not injured and referred further questions on the shooting to the Department of Justice. A 2014 study by the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice reported that per capita, Native Americans are more likely to be killed by police than any other demographic in the U.S. In fact, Native American children experience PTSD at the same rate as combat veterans. Jason, we remember you. That's Jason. It's good to remember him. Mm -hmm. And I want to thank Alan Salwa from Teen Vogue for pointing out that the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history took place in 1890 when representatives of the U.S. government executed as many as 300 Native men, women, and children at Wounded Knee, South Dakota, for practicing ghost dancing, a spiritual tradition. Uh, and Native American women, it's it's notable to say, uh, today are still at a very high risk of assault, injury, and death by gun violence. Now moving on to this week in the news. Josh, take it away. Sure. Uh, first up from the New York Times, uh, we have the NRA turning its sights on the Violence Against Women's Act, opposing domestic abuse legislation. The NRA has set settled on its next target on Capitol Hill, blocking Congress from reauthorizing the Violence Against Women's Act, a 1994 law that assists victims of domestic and sexual violence. The House is set to vote on the legislation this week. But the bill includes a new provision aimed at curbing sexual violence by expanding law enforcement's ability to strip domestic abusers of their guns that the NRA does not like. The measure closes the so-called boyfriend loophole by barring those convicted of abusing, assaulting, or stalking a dating partner for those subject to a court restraining order from buying or owning firearms. Just a note to say that the boyfriend loophole is a little outdated as that gender marker. Um, And unsurprisingly, NRA leadership is opposing these common sense bipartisan policies. Under current federal law, those convicted of domestic abuse can lose their guns if they are, or were formerly, married to their victim, live with their victim, have a child with their victim, or are a parent or guardian of their victim. The provoked proposed provision would extend those who can be convicted of domestic abuse to include stalkers or current or former dating partners. Jennifer Baker of the NRA said that, quote, for many of those offenses, and I'm using air quotes here, the behavior that would qualify as a stalking offense is often not violent or threatening. It involves no personal contact whatsoever. She argues that the new provision is, quote, too broad and ripe for abuse. Others find the NRA's argument far-fetched. A single tweet or Facebook message without significant other conduct would ordinarily not be enough to result in a conviction or for stalking, said David Keck, director of the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence and Firearms, which currently doesn't have a stated position on the new provision. Others have joined the chorus of discontent and skepticism with the NRA rhetoric, most notably freshman Democrats in Congress who are elected on a promise to enact new gun restrictions and in opposition to the NRA. One of those Democrats, Representative Lucy McBath of Georgia and one of GAG's personal heroes, said that recently, quote, the number one way that women are being killed with guns is by their beloveds, their boyfriends, their significant others. And I'm not paying attention to the rhetoric of the NRA because it can't 
I can't be distracted. What's most important is putting forth good legislation to save as many lives as we can. Macbeth's son, Jordan Davis, was shot to death in 2012. Next up, uh, from the Denver Post and Denverite, uh, a Colorado sheriff stands in opposition to red flag laws, and he's not alone. Weld County Sheriff Steve Reams told CNN recently he's willing to be a prisoner in his own jail rather than to enforce a law he feels is unconstitutional. And J Reams is not alone. 32 or half of Colorado's 64 counties have declared themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuary counties, meaning they will support local sheriffs who decline to enforce the laws. Even Douglas County passed a resolution against the law despite the fact that it's named after one of its own slain deputies, in a move that ignited a feud between the county sheriff and its commissioners. Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock, a Republican, has been one of the most ardent supporters of this red flag law, which is also called the Deputy Zachary Parrish III Violence Prevention Act. In March, Douglas County commis commissioners threatened to withhold funds from Spurlock if he chose to enforce it, as reported by the news, uh, news channel Denver 7. But even as multiple counties and their leaders pass these so-called Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions, House Bill 19-1177, also known as an Extreme Risk Protection Orders Bill, or Red Flag Bill, passed the Colorado Senate by a vote of 18-17 to 17 last week. Jared Polis, uh, the governor there in Colorado, is now expected to sign the bill allowing for the temporary removal of guns from people exhibiting violent or dangerous behavior after the House passed the legislation by a vote of 38 to 25 just yesterday. The bill allows for extreme risk pr protection orders, which can be obtained by family members or law enforcement who petition a judge to remove firearms from a person exhibiting violent or dangerous behavior. It's been one of the most contentious pieces of legislation in the current session, fueling speculation from Republicans in the minority that Democrats in control of both chambers were overreaching. And later in the show, um, Sarah and I are going to give an account of GAG's recent visit to the Judiciary Committee hearing in D.C. for federal legislation that seeks to respond to the very issue that um, uh, these ERPO or red flag uh, laws. It's so good to hear that so much is mm -hmm. happening in gun violence prevention legislation and also devastating to hear that mm -hmm. sheriffs, half the sheriffs in the counties in Colorado could decide not to enforce the law. I know. It's like if you, if you don't want to hold up the laws, if you don't want to defend them, then get out of office, right? Yeah. Like why are you a sheriff? In preparing for this week's show, we found perhaps unsurprisingly that there's a gap between how Americans related to guns during the 19th and early 20th centuries and how it's been portrayed in popular culture and legislation that has evolved in the, in the ensuing decades. That's right. And what I found most amazing, Sarah, is that people felt the mere presence of guns uh, were a threat in public spaces. Um, there were strict laws to respect places where guns weren't allowed. Uh, consider visitors locking up their firearms when a with the sheriff when they came into town. Um, in fact, a number of uh, Western states, with the help of the NRA, are now loosening gun safety and carry laws in public spaces, as opposed to 150 years ago. Um, many of those public spaces include schools. 
Um, but Sarah, you've got a great story lined up for us on this topic, right? I have been fascinated by the next story for some time. It's the story of a high society heiress, Sarah Winchester, who was convinced that she was haunted by the ghosts of the people who were killed by Winchester rifles. And it's the story of the glamorizing of guns by Hollywood. I'm a California girl. Dry hills, deserts, hiking through the canyon. There's a picture of me from my junior high school's western days, wearing a black cowboy hat. I never fired a gun, though. To me, they were just part of the outfit. Not so for Sarah Winchester, the eccentric Victorian-era heiress of the Winchester Repeating Firearms Company. In the mid-19th century, her husband William struck it rich in New Haven, Connecticut with the repeating rifle, a firearm that automatically reloaded and expelled the spent cartridge. The Winchester repeating rifle became a weapon of choice for the infantry of both the Union Army and the Confederacy in the American Civil War. This rifle, the Winchester 73, as it became known, was one of the instruments of death in our great civil war, a war so deadly and bloody that all the casualties in every war that has followed still do not equal the 620,000 lost in those years. This rifle became famous for winning the West, the romantic branding used for the genocidal war the U.S. Cavalry waged on the Sioux, Cheyenne, and other indigenous people. U.S. forces succeeded in confiscating their lands, confining their nations to reservations, and forcing death marches to relocate remaining members of ravaged tribes. Sarah Winchester lived a life far away from all that. She was a beautiful society woman, the pride of her hometown of New Haven. Sadly, her first child, Annie, died at about six months old, and she never had another. Her husband, too, died a few years later, leaving the Winchester heiress with a great deal of money and a lonely life. Sarah moved out to California and bought a three-bedroom ranch house in San Jose. Her remodeling project became an architectural curiosity that is a popular tourist attraction today. As she expanded the home to suit a woman of her means, with beautiful stained-glass windows, inlaid fireplaces and ballrooms, she began to practice spiritualism, a popular Victorian belief dedicated to communicating with the spirits of the dead. By 1897, there were more than 8 million practitioners in the U.S., mainly from the upper and middle class. It is said that Sarah was told by a medium that she was being haunted by evil spirits who wished to harm her. These were the ghosts of legions of Civil War soldiers and Native Americans who had been killed by Winchester rifles. The evidence is in the sprawling house that she left. It contains many stairways that lead nowhere, doors that open onto walls, and hallways that end abruptly, the perfect way to confuse a wandering ghost. The legendary status of Winchester rifles was cemented in the 1950s with the Hollywood Western Winchester 73. In this story, James Stewart and Shelley Winters star as outlaws and lawmen fight over the gun and it becomes a bargaining chip between warring tribes and U.S. cavalry. Who needs product placement when Hollywood will make you a legend for just being the deadly and accurate rifle that you are? No wonder Winchester is still selling rifles. 
They sponsor a big industry trade show every year in January, just so gun owner fans can get a preview of all the new weapons. Nostalgia over the Wild West keeps selling guns today, even though it is widely known that American forces waged genocidal war on indigenous people and villages. Native Americans barely survived those genocidal years. Guns have always played a part in the oppression of minorities, women, and the poor. It's time to wake up from an American dream that promotes violence and death. Yeah, so this <laughs> was so, so much funny for, that, for me to get into. Story. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, so I was telling Josh that uh, one of my relatives, my great aunt Jessie, was really into this spiritualism. She used to read tea uh -huh. leaves and cards. I love it. And I inherited a collection of her crystal balls, which I gave oh my to my gosh. daughters. Are you serious? I take them out and I charge them in the moonlight. Yeah. Can you, pr can you please bring them to a gag meeting? Oh, yes. One night? That would be awesome. Definitely. We can look in there and see what the future holds, as if we didn't know. Yes, please. So uh, we want to get into the part of the myth that is mm -hmm. the cowboy. And yes. we hear so much these days about toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. So what have you learned about masculinity and the Wild West? <laughs> well, I'm a true man. Um, well, I took a look at Western films of the mid-20th century, 20th century, particularly those of director John Ford uh, that starred John Wayne. And when I mentioned to you, Sarah, the subject of false and maybe toxic masculinity in these films, you sent me a great article from The Atlantic. Uh, a man by the name of Stephen Metcalf is a renowned film historian. Um, I'm really glad that you sent me that article um, because what I found was a world of information uh, about one of Hollywood's most popular and longstanding genres, the Western. Uh, perhaps it's first true auteur, John Ford, and his muse and eventual icon, uh, an image of the true man on screen, Mr. John Wayne. Uh, let's kick it off with a little bit about John Ford. He was an American film director whose legacy is perhaps as prolific as his reputation was notorious. He's best known for his films Stagecoach, The Searchers, and The Man Who Shot Liberty uh, Valance, all of which starred John Wayne. All his four Academy Awards for Best Picture in 35, 40, 41, and 52, respectively, still remain a, a record uh, for the category. In a career that yeah right, in a career that spanned more than 50 years, Ford directed more than 140 films, including silent films in his early career, many of which have been lost, uh, and is widely regarded as one of the most important of his generation, if not of all time. Through the years, Ford would forge a successful professional relationship and personal bond with Hollywood's favorite cowboy, John Wayne. Uh, Wade, Wayne's own career actually began in the background as an extra, um, and he herded a flock of geese on the set of Mother McCree. I so saw that movie. It was of, so cute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was with this wavy hair yeah. and, and baby face. Um, so in those years, he was imposing, uh, yet pretty green, and would later claim to actually have no desire to be an actor, uh, if we believe that or not. Ford noticed him from the start, uh, who could avoid that baby face, uh, but he felt he wasn't quite ready. He's quoted as saying, uh, I wanted some pain written on his face to offset that innocence. 
it ended up being Raoul Walsh, actually, who cast him in his first uh, leading role and told him, after consulting with the studio bosses, of course, that he should change his name to John Wayne. He was actually born uh, Marion. Uh, that's not quite a masculine first name um, in Winterset, Iowa. Um, and after making literally dozens of quite forgettable westerns over the course of nearly a decade, Ford spotted him once again. It was 1938, and he was now uh, an Academy Award-winning director, so he had some clout in Hollywood. He allegedly tossed Wayne a script uh, that he was considering, calling him an idiot if he didn't take the role, and offered him the lead in the film. That film would be uh, Stagecoach. The duo went on to make 23 pictures together, but not until nearly a nine-year hiatus on the part of uh, Wayne. He essentially reappeared in 1948 as sort of the prototype of the image we now see in our heads, right? That honest-to-goodness cowboy. He was stoic, he was strong, and he was hard. Most strikingly, he stood in stark contrast to the post-war era of affluence that a lot of folks enjoyed at that time in America, coming home after the war. There was that economic boom boom at the time. Uh, In their creative partnership, Ford and Wayne, uh, quote, succeeded in defining an ideal of American masculinity that dominated for nearly half a century. Nancy Schoenberger, the author, writes in her book, uh, Wayne and Ford, the films, the friendship, and the forging of an American hero. Uh, She also contends that the masculine uh, ideal carefully crafted by Ford and fully embodied by Wayne is salvageable and even honorable still today. However, this is important to note, Sarah. Okay. Ford crafted his ideal representation of a true man through the lens of his own uneasiness and embarrassment of his perceived masculinity. As noted by his family members and contemporaries in Hollywood, he often struggled with the way that he spoke and he moved. Uh, Ford would accuse Wayne of walking like a sissy, um, but at the same time, his own walk was seen by others as being effeminate. Uh, This is sort of the mirror image, uh, the opposite image of Wayne's notably slow talk, his distinctive gravelly voice, and his heavy swagger. Um, One could think that Ford was creating an image that he would like to see of himself on screen. Um, That invention of John Wayne as the perfect specimen of masculinity seems to track also with how the greatest generation's own experience was going from World War II to that post-war affluence I mentioned, and then the the ensuing sort of daily grind, the routines and the boredom that came from it, and then finally their well-earned retirement. Wayne's early pictures offered up that willful strongman, while his later pictures like McClintock uh, and Rooster Cogburn, those are my favorite John Wayne movies, yeah, featured uh, characters that sort of eased into the role of playing opposite strong-willed women uh, who challenged his sense of superiority on the screen. Um, to the extent that any actor becomes that icon, he's bigger than his role, right? And John Wayne, the icon, has consistently appealed to men who may feel smaller than they think they deserve to be. 
In that way, we can see him as an empty vessel, right? Designed to fill the need for men, uh, in particular, to live out their masculine fantasies, to fulfill their want and need, perhaps to be the man with the strongest arm, maybe the widest stance and the biggest gun. Uh, Wayne's characters consistently represented just that for his fans. And the storylines always provided the perfect scenario for them to act out these fantasies of ultimate masculinity. The Western nearly always still glorifies active violence by that lone cowboy or cow girl, um, then justifies them as necessary because maybe the state doesn't, the state proves too weak to dispense justice itself. I think that's a key idea. The yeah. state is too weak, so mm-hmm. men have to stand up and they have to take the law exactly into their right. own hands. Yeah. So how did you feel personally about John Wayne growing up? Yeah, well, like I mentioned, uh, Wayne was born in Iowa just like me. So from an early time when I visited his birthplace in Winterset with my family, I saw him as not only um, an icon on the screen, but a fellow Iowan. So there was that affinity there. Actually, my grandfather was a huge fan, um, and he sort of typifies that greatest generation fan base, right? Somebody who served in the war came back on that GI Bill, built his house, built his family, built his life, and then eased into retirement watching, you know, a version of himself or what he would have liked to have been on screen. It's easy to love these yeah. guys. Yeah. True okay. Grit. Well, moving ahead, I hear uh, you have done some great work recently on a road trip to Washington, D.C. Can you tell us about sure what you and some of the other gaggers got up to in our nation's capital? Uh, I'd be pleased to. Last Tuesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing concerning gun violence for the first time in over 22 years, I believe, something like that. Um, And GAG joined with other GVP groups in the chamber during that meeting. We all jumped in the van at 1 a.m., traveled down to D.C. just in time to wait two and a half hours in line to get into the the hearing chamber. Um, But it's good that we did, not only because we were assured a place in the chamber that day, uh, but because a lot of other GVP groups um, and other individuals um, in the movement were there, folks that we, you know, we liked their pictures on Instagram, we talked to them on, on Facebook and Twitter, uh, but we've never been able to meet face-to-face, um, maybe. Uh, folks like Kristen and Michael Song, who lost their son Ethan, Um, are working toward uh, child access prevention laws that currently pertain only to loaded firearms. Their son, Ethan, um, was actually killed accidentally when he found both an unloaded gun and ammunition with his friends and shot himself. So they're working on legislation right now. That's every parent's nightmare. Yeah, exactly right. I grew up in a house with firearms, and it was just drilled into our heads to stay out of the case, you know, and and, it happens. Um, other folks like Moms Demand, uh, the Brady Campaign, and Newtown Alliance were there. It was great. Yeah, so we can look forward to some of that, um, those um, collaborations in mm-hmm. the future. Uh, we have events coming up we sure with do. Uh, GAG. And why don't you tell us, Josh, about how we can get involved? I know you're dying to get involved. Well, next week, Thursday, April 11th, at the LGBT Center in the Village, uh, we'll be planning great actions and protest. Everybody is welcome. We can't wait to see you there. Awesome. I will be there. 
And our monthly HB action, our human beings, will take place at St. Patrick's Cathedral on Palm Sunday, April 14th. If you're not familiar, human beings is a name given to people who dress all in white, are veiled and silent, and each of whom represents and holds space for someone who lost their life to gun violence. You can email info at gazeagainstguns.net. Follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at Gag no Guns. On Insta and Facebook, we're Gays Against Guns NY. Like us, share us, watch us, retweet us, repost us. To find out more about having a fabulous time with us, go to gaysagainstguns.net. You can also learn more about gag chapters located nationwide and how to found a chapter in your own neck of the woods. And don't forget to become a WBAI buddy. Visit givetowbai.org for more information and help Radio Gag support the great work of this station. Yes, please. We are ready now for our weekly Hell Yes. Yes. Okay, we got Owen Crowley and Mia McClinton for work on this week's show. Hell Hell yeah. yeah. Hell yeah to the producers of Club Stock, an upcoming benefit at Club Coming this Sunday. Shout out to our dear friend and their activist, Queen in Residence, Marty Gold Cummings. The show is billed as an act of peaceful protest to benefit benefit gag. Hell Hell yeah. yeah. And hell yeah to everyone who went to D.C. and gagger Mary Ellen Novak for her CD action during the Senate hearing. Hell Hell yeah. yeah. Mary Ellen got arrested. You can look at it on C-SPAN. It's amazing. Uh, Thanks for listening this week. We'll be back next week, Tuesday, April 9th at 6.30 p.m. You can listen to previous radio gag shows anytime on WBAI.org, gazeagainstguns.net, and now on Stitcher and iTunes. Uh, And we're going to leave you with this extra special (laughs) singing quartet sing out louise version uh it's recorded in front of the whitney museum it is the wells fargo bankers it's a great way to tell the nra bank of the nra to get along little doggies well until (laughs) next time happy trails trails to you (laughs) until we meet again until we meet again bye